It's the 10th of June, 1960, and air traffic controller E.W. Miskell is talking to Captain F.C. Pollard of Trans-Australia Airlines Flight 538. Everything's routine, except the weather, which isn't cooperating today. At the airport in Mackay, Queensland, it's foggy. In fact, it's so foggy that Miskell advises Pollard that the airport is closed and he won't be able to land. Pollard isn't too worried. His plane, a 44-seat Fokker Friendship F27-100, had been refueled at his last stop in Rockhampton, Queensland, in case of bad weather at Mackay. He has enough fuel to safely reach Townsville, and he decides to hold over the airport instead. It's approximately 20 minutes past 8 o'clock in the evening. Pollard and Miskell continue to communicate for the next two hours or so, as the captain attempts two landings. But he has to abort both due to being unable to see the runway each time. By 10 o'clock, flight 538 is still in a holding pattern over Mackay. Pollard asked for permission to begin a third approach and was approved by Miskell. Then Miskell realized that he needed to give Pollard information about the ground temperature. This is very important because, of course, the temperature in the air, very different to that on the ground and can affect a plane as it lands. He had given Pollard permission to begin a third approach at 10 o'clock. Five minutes later, he radios back Pollard with the information about ground temperature. There's no response. Miskill tries again. Silence. At 10 past 10, with no word from Flight 538, Miskill initiates a search and rescue operation. Five hours later, in the early hours of Saturday morning, the crew of a search and rescue boat spots something horrific in the water off the coast of Mackay. Bodies. <laughs> As they approach, they find pieces of luggage, destroyed seats, and pieces of twisted metal. Flight 538 has crashed into the ocean less than 10 kilometers from the airport, killing all 29 people on board. What happened? And how did it happen so fast? Bad weather? Faulty instruments? Or something more sinister? I'm Juliana, and you're listening to The Skeptical Historian. Hello, fellow skeptics, and thank you once again for joining me today. As always, I would like to begin this show by acknowledging the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung, and Boonwurrung people on whose land I am podcasting today. Shout out also to Studio 4 at the State Library of Victoria, where this episode is being recorded. If you would like more information or would like to book the studio yourself, please head to www.slv.vic.gov.au. As you will have guessed from the top of this episode, today we are examining a plane crash, which resulted in multiple fatalities, including eight children. As such, this episode may not be appropriate for all listeners. And if you are listening on a plane, I highly recommend you find something else to listen to, unless you've got nerves of steel. I'm sure there's a good in-flight movie on offer. 
and you can catch up on this story once you're safely back on the ground. But if you are still with me, get ready for one heck of a ride because the story of Flight 538 didn't end in the early hours of the 11th of June 1960 when the wreckage was found. In fact, it continues to this day. And if you, yes, you listening right now, have ever flown in a passenger aircraft, you are part of that legacy. The accident itself was incredibly significant for multiple reasons, and I will get into those. But I want to start by saying that Flight 538 remains tied for the second worst air disaster in Australia's history and tied also for our worst civilian air accident. In 1950, an Australian National Airways flight crashed outside of Perth. 28 of the 29 people on board were killed instantly, and the sole survivor died six days later in hospital. 29 people were also killed on board Flight 538, although there were no initial survivors of that accident. Everyone on board died at the time of impact. Given how large Australia is and how many planes take off, land and cross this continent every single day, the fact that we have never had a civilian air disaster with more than 29 fatalities and that both of them occurred in the decades before the safety features we take for granted became standard on modern aircraft speaks volumes for the safety of aviation in this country. And safety is what I really want to talk about today, actually. Remember how I said that you were part of Flight 538's ongoing legacy? That's because following on from this accident, one of the most incredibly important pieces of technology became mandatory in all Australian passenger aircraft. And that was the cockpit voice recorder or the CVR. If you have flown in a passenger plane, that plane was equipped with a CVR thanks to the haunting questions surrounding what happened in the final five minutes of Flight 538. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's great, Juliana, but how on earth does a CVR make flying safer? Look, I won't lie. It's not going to do anything during a crash. Its whole purpose exists so that investigators can find out what happened during that crash. The data it records is absolutely invaluable in these types of investigations. By listening to the CVR and comparing it to the metrics from the flight data recorder, another piece of important equipment that became mandatory following the crash of Flight 538, Investigators can determine the cause of an accident and make specific recommendations to prevent those types of accidents from occurring in the future. Now, as you've probably guessed, Flight 538 was not equipped with a CVR or an FDR. This was partly because of the time that the plane was flying, although we cannot contribute this solely to time and date. CVR-like devices, while they weren't common, did exist in 1960 and had been used successfully. In fact, they've been used very successfully since World War II. But airlines and governments were actually against the installation of CVRs and FDRs for the most part during this time. These reasons weren't nefarious. Uh, commercial air travel itself was not particularly new. The first passenger flight occurred in 1913, actually. But it was still something relatively exclusive in 1960. And while plane crashes were more common then than they are today, they weren't happening every week, at least not in Australia. 
And current methods of investigating the crashes that did happen, namely examining the wreckage, were seen as adequate, and the expense of adding CVRs and FDRs was seen as perfectly unnecessary. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Which, by the way, is one of the worst attitudes you can have when it comes to new safety technology. And Flight 538 changed that perception in a big way. Remember, between the time when Miskell cleared Pollard to attempt a third landing and when he came back on the radio to advise the captain of the weather conditions on the ground, only five minutes had elapsed. That's not a lot of time, especially when you consider the speed that planes fly at. So a, a Fokker Friendship F-27 has an approximate landing speed of around 120 knots, or that's about 222 kilometers per hour. Assuming that Flight 538 was flying at its regular landing speed, the plane could have covered roughly 15 kilometers in that five minutes. So it could have reached the airport quite successfully. Yet we know that it crashed just nine kilometers off the coast of Mackay. Now, that's incredibly chilling as it suggests that Flight 538 was actually just seconds away from hitting the water when Captain Pollard confirmed to Miskell that he was ready to make a third landing attempt. But how could he possibly have been so close to the ground and not known about it? We're going to discuss some of those theories right after I get back from this break. Welcome back, my friends. Now, before the break, we were discussing the crash of Trans-Australian Airlines Flight 538 off the coast of Mackay, Queensland in 1960. Given what we already know about the weather conditions, it was extremely foggy that night, and the two aborted landing attempts, we can safely deduce that the visibility would have been very poor. And looking at the speed of the plane and the distance to the crash site, it appears the Fokker F-27 was dangerously low without anyone being the wiser as Captain Pollard made a third attempt to land at Mackay. At this point, it's reasonable if you're wondering how on earth a plane could be so close to the ground without anyone knowing about it. If, like me, you've watched any documentaries about plane crashes, you'll probably be familiar with something called a Ground Proximity Warning System, or GPWS, which sounds a little something like this. Terrain, terrain, pull up, terrain, terrain, pull up. This is the kind of sound no pilot wants to hear. Although, in theory at least, this warning should sound in time for a pilot to be able to climb out of trouble. Although generally, by the time that alarm is going off, you're already in serious trouble. It's not the kind of alarm one can easily ignore. And had Flight 538 been equipped with one, we probably wouldn't be talking about it today. Unfortunately, these systems didn't exist yet in 1960. The first GPWS would not actually be trialed until 1971. So pilots had to rely on the instruments they did have and visual cues to know how close they were to the ground. So in poor visibility conditions, like those experienced at Mackay the night of the crash, this would have been particularly difficult. Without being able to see well, the crew would have been relying heavily on their altimeter to tell them how close they were and at what altitude they were flying. And it was the altimeter that the investigation into the crash of Flight 538 focused on. This instrument was recovered along with the rest of the wreckage, and the investigation found it had most likely been fully functional at the time of the accident. However, it was extensively damaged, and the investigators couldn't rule out 
that it may have malfunctioned, and that's important for what we're about to discuss, although they expressed very clearly in their report that they believed it had been working when the plane hit the water. Now, this initial discovery that the altimeter was probably working led to a second discovery, which was rather more disturbing. The altimeter on flight 538 was a three-point altimeter, which was common in aircraft at the time. It had individual pointers showing thousands of feet, hundreds of feet, and tens of feet. Um, aircraft measurements are still always done using the Imperial system. And it was very, very common for pilots to misinterpret the altimeter and believe they were as much as 10,000 feet higher than they actually were. So, for instance, a plane might be flying at 1,500 feet, but due to the design of the altimeter, this can look like 15,000 feet. In the days before ground proximity warning systems, this kind of mistake was routinely fatal. So is that what happened on flight 538? Did Captain Pollard or his first officer misread the plane's instruments and believe they were still circling at a safe altitude? If so, flight 538 would be an instance of controlled flight into terrain, or CFIT in the aviation world. According to aircraft manufacturer Boeing, CFIT is an accident in which an airworthy aircraft under pilot control is unintentionally flown into the ground, a mountain, a body of water, or an obstacle. That word unintentionally is very important here, as it distinguishes CFIT from crashes which occur as a result of deliberate actions by someone at the controls, such as in suicide by pilot or a terrorist attack. Importantly, CFIT accidents were the most common form of accident in the world prior to the introduction of ground proximity warning systems. They averaged out at about one a month, and almost all of them occurred in reduced visibility conditions. Interestingly, in the case of Flight 538, most instances of CFIT occurred when planes either flew into the sides of mountains, which is not relevant here, or when a pilot believed he was higher than he actually was, which is considered very likely in this incident, given the type of altimeter being used in the plane. But those who knew Captain Pollard argued he had far too much experience to simply fly his plane into the sea. This type of argument is really common following a CFIT accident, as there's often a misunderstanding about what CFIT actually is. It's not the result of stupidity or laziness by the pilot at all. So the human body is not designed to fly, obviously. And the physiology that keeps us stable on the ground does not serve us very well in the air. Optical illusions caused by poor weather conditions can cause fatal accidents through no fault of the pilot. Inner ear fluid balancing out incorrectly can cause fatal accidents. This was the cause of the death of JFK Jr., Remember, this plane was flying in 1960, so it didn't have all the fancy safety tech that modern planes are equipped with to tell pilots what's happening without them being completely reliant on analog instruments or their own senses. If Pollard became disorientated in the fog with either a malfunctioning altimeter or one which he or his crew misinterpreted without any visual landmarks or cues to tell him where he was, remember also this crash occurred at night, so visibility would have been further reduced, then all the experience in the world couldn't have saved him if he was not where he thought he was. But was the crash of Flight 538 a CFIT accident, or was it something else? 
Because the plane was not equipped with either CVR or FDR, the inquiry could make no definitive finding into the cause of the crash. While CFIT is considered the most likely possibility, there are two other possibilities I think are worth looking at today. Of course, there are more than three theories about what happened to this plane, but I'm not here to give the baseless conspiracies airtime. An interesting object was found among the wreckage of the cockpit, a brown glass bottle, like the kind that would be used to hold medicine. Neither the captain nor the co-pilot were known to be taking any medication, and closer examination of the bottle realized it had not held medicine at all, but model aviation fuel. This may seem quite strange, but at the time, these bottles were all the rage among young aviation enthusiasts. And there were nine boys from Rockhampton Grammar School on board the flight. One of the investigators theorized that one of these children had shown his bottle of model aviation fuel to the captain or a crew member before the flight took off. And the crew, knowing the boy would have been bored after having been in a holding pattern for two hours over Mackay, might have invited him into the cockpit to have a look at the plane's instruments. I'm going to pause here and note this was actually more common than you might think in those pre-9-11 days, especially on small planes with children on board. Now, of course, in our post-9-11 world, this would never, ever happen. But back to our theory. The investigator said that the young aviation enthusiast might have accidentally dropped his bottle of model jet fuel in the cockpit, causing it either to smash or for some of it to spill. Could the pilots have been distracted by the fumes? While it was model jet fuel, it was still pungent. And could this have caused the crash of the plane? The other investigators found it highly unlikely. There wouldn't have been enough model fuel in that bottle, even if the entire bottle had spilled, to release enough fumes to cause the pilots to become either incapacitated or so distracted that they couldn't fly the plane. While it's quite possible that some of those young boys did get to come up and see the cockpit to try and entertain them while they were circling for two hours over Mackay, and some of them could have had those very popular little bottles of jet fuel, a spilled bottle wouldn't have been enough to down the plane. But what about the final theory? This theory was formed by quite a senior member of the investigation team who suggested that the incredibly low flight path taken by Pollard in those last five minutes had not been caused by a misread or malfunctioning altimeter, but that Pollard had quite deliberately chosen to fly low. He suggested that on Pollard's third attempt to land, he chose to try and fly under the fog to make it easier to see the runway and execute the landing third time lucky. However, given Pollard had been circling for so long, the theory goes, he wasn't where he thought he was, so misjudged the height of his plane while flying over the sea. The water was very still that night, and with reflected lights, it could have appeared like land to a disorientated pilot in the dark. As he made his final turn, his wingtip hit the water and caused the plane to crash. This theory is certainly more plausible than the idea of a spilled bottle of model jet fuel. Those who knew Captain Pollard also claim it's more likely than the idea that he simply became so disorientated and had no idea where or how high he was and simply flew into the sea. However, even if this is what happened and Pollard chose to try and fly under the fog to make a visual approach to the airport, the fact that he might have become disorientated over water still means the crash would have been a controlled flight into terrain. So why couldn't the inquiry make an official finding on the matter? And can we answer some of the questions about the final five minutes of Flight 538? I'll tell you right after this break. 
Welcome back, skeptics. Now, after all this discussion, you may be wondering why, given a controlled flight into terrain is the most likely outcome to explain the crash of Flight 538, that the inquiry didn't make a finding. Air crash investigations are incredibly complex and they require weeks, sometimes months or years in the cases of big planes, of work before a finding can be made. In the case of Flight 538, a board of inquiry was appointed in July 1960, but it didn't open until October of that year, after the investigators had had time to go through all the wreckage. The inquiry then sat for almost a month, interviewing the investigators and hearing from witnesses such as Miskell, the air traffic controller, before concluding in early November. They found that because there was no way to know what happened on the plane in the five minutes between Miskell's final call to Captain Pollard, they could not make a determination as to how the plane ended up in the sea. They ruled out some ideas, such as the suggestion of suicide by pilot, pointing out that Pollard had no history of mental health issues, and if he had been intending to kill himself and all the people on board, he had plenty of opportunity to send the plane into the ground in the two hours he circled Mackay. They were mildly critical of his decision to hold over the airport rather than continue on to Townsville, given he had enough fuel to do so. And it's actually never been made clear why he did this. It's one of the unanswered questions of Flight 538. Why didn't Captain Pollard, on encountering the heavy fog at Mackay and knowing the airport had been closed, simply continue on to Townsville? And could a cockpit voice recorder have answered this question for us? It's incredibly likely it could have. Given the time Captain Pollard spent attempting to land and holding at the airport over Mackay, he and his first officer, this is a man named G.L. Davis, would have almost certainly discussed this. It would have ultimately been Pollard's call. I read a book a few years ago by the captain of QF-32, Richard Champion de Crispigny. I apologize, sir, if I have butchered your surname. Uh, his plane suffered a catastrophic engine failure, but he was able to safely land it with no casualties. And he talks about a flight deck as not being a committee. The captain is ultimately in command and responsible for the passengers, crew and the aircraft. So even if Davis might have objected or suggested they go on to Townsville, it would have ultimately been Captain Pollard's decision to remain in that holding pattern. It is worth noting that the air traffic controller gave Pollard clearance to remain in that holding pattern, but he was in no way compelled to stay, and Pollard could have radioed for a new flight path to Townsville at any time, and Miskell, the air traffic controller, would have given that to him. Because the investigations at this time could only rely on what they could find in the wreckage of a plane crash or what any witnesses may have seen or heard, they were hampered in being able to reach a definitive conclusion. On the basis of the evidence before them, the inquiry could not find a cause. And to this day, the official cause of the crash of Flight 538 remains unsolved. Although, as we have discussed, there is a commonly accepted theory among the aviation community and a very likely and reasonable if incredibly tragic explanation for what happened that night. To help with future investigations of this kind, one of the recommendations made by the investigators of Flight 538 was that cockpit voice recorders and flight data recorders, both of which existed at this time, be installed on all commercial flights in Australia. 
this recommendation was acted on and Australia actually became the first country in the world to mandate CVRs and FDRs on its planes and then on any plane which flew in its airspace. Other countries later followed suit and today it is mandatory for every plane all over the world to be equipped with these devices. What's even more interesting is that the modern day CVR and FDR were invented by an Australian, David War, and their use in modern aviation has helped uncover the causes of multiple accidents and made air travel safer for everyone in the skies today. Now, the victims of Flight 538 included some rather notable people. Um, Mr. John O'Grady, who was the United States Consul in Queensland, and Mr. A. Cole, the director of the Queensland Board of Tourism. As I've also said, there were eight school children from Rockhampton Grammar School returning home for the long weekend, and Captain Pollard and First Officer Davis were also killed. They were among, of course, the total 29 passengers. There were no survivors. All the passengers were accounted for, but unfortunately, not all their remains could be identified. That is to say, they found 29 sets of remains but couldn't positively identify all of them. This was due to some of the bodies being burnt or disfigured in the crash or mauled by sharks in the aftermath after hitting the water. As always, when I discuss tragedies, I would like to conclude this episode with a minute's silence for the victims of Flight 538. So please join me now. Thanks for joining me today. You can find me online at www.skepticalhistory.com. That's skeptical with a K. Or on social media, I am Juliana Byers on both LinkedIn and Instagram. As for our next episode, well, I've realized that the skeptical historian's been off to a bit of a dark start. I mean, stupid explorers, disappearing prime ministers, racist gold miners, murder, arson, soldiers drowning in pools of mud thousands of miles from home, and now a plane crash? Yeek! So I decided I'd better lighten things up a little. Next Fortnite's episode will be released in time for, wait for it, International Fairy Day. At the request of a very special listener, I'll be diving into some of the most famous mythical creatures from the British Isles, fairies, unicorns, dragons, and more, and examining how these creatures became so iconic so far from home. So join me next time for a little magic. The Skeptical Historian is researched, produced, and hosted by me, Juliana Byers. You can find a full list of resources used in researching by going to my website and clicking on Sources. Sound effects by Adobe Creative Cloud, used under the Adobe Software License Agreement and Pixabay. 
used under Creative Commons 4.0 international license. All other sound effects by Epidemic Sound and used under an Epidemic Sound individual license, including the Whistlefunk by Telsonic. Podcast hosting is by Fusebox. See you next time, skeptics.